The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, we are so glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. I want to welcome those of you that are here, those in overflow, and especially those that are tuning in online. We're we're excited uh, to be studying the, the book of Genesis, and Kathy just read a very large swath of the text from the time the first raindrops fell to the time the earth was dried, the entire flood account we read in one swath this morning. You know that there are over 200 cultures worldwide that have stories of or myths of a global flood? All over the face of the earth, on all corners of the earth, cultures from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group have a myth or a story in their, in their lineage or in their heritage of a global flood. And here in our text today, we get to see the actual, real, historical event that led to all those myths being spread across the face of the earth. And as we look at our text today, I want you to hone in on chapter 8, verse 1. There's something incredible that we read in the first few words of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. That's the name of my sermon today. God remembered Noah. Let's think about what it means to remember. Has this ever happened to you? Have have you been like driving somewhere or or living in the mundane moments of life? Maybe you're in the middle of a work day. Maybe you're at home kind of taking a day off. Just going about your business when all of a sudden a person out of the blue is impressed upon your heart. And you just, your thoughts fall on this person for some unknown reason. You're not even sure the stimulus as to why, but your thoughts fall on a person. Maybe it's someone close to you, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, a colleague, a friend. But for some reason, they're just on your heart and you're brought to a remembrance of this person. Sometimes it might not even be that it's a person who's close to you. Maybe it's an old high school friend or a former coworker or a neighbor or someone you barely know. But for some reason, they're suddenly impressed upon your heart, whether it's someone you're close to or not. What do you do in those moments? When all of a sudden there's just a person that settles into your heart and mind. Like, what do you do in those moments? This happens to me all the time. And and when it's someone close to me, if it's my wife or kids, they'll tell you that I am the kind of person who expresses my love in physical affection and in words of affirmation. And no one in my family appreciates that. And so my kids are like, okay, dad, get off me. It's gross. Stop. Stop hugging me, dad. I know you love me. You tell me that every day, dad. But I'll go, if it's someone that's, that I'm close to or is in close proximity, I'll, I'll act and, and, and express my love in a meaningful way in that moment. But oftentimes it's someone who, who I don't live with. And so what I'll do is I'll call, I'll text, I'll email, I'll pray. I just have this conviction that if, if, if God drops a person in my heart, whether I know them well or not, there's a reason why that person has fallen on my heart. And so I, I think it's important to respond in action in that moment. When I look at this text where it says, God remembered Noah... I wonder what it's like for Noah and what it's like for God in that experience. What does it mean that God remembered Noah? The Old Testament word that's used here for remember is a word that's pronounced zahar. It does mean to remember, but there's more to it than just remembering. It's not just a mental exercise. The definition, it goes deeper. It also means that not only does it bring someone to mind, but there's a call to act on that person's behalf. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an action aspect to the biblical understanding of the word remember, especially this word zakar. It's as much a direct action as it is a mental exercise. And so God remembered Noah. What this means 
is that as, as God's just wrath was cleansing the world of, of depravity and debauchery and perversion and grievous sin, as the raging waters of judgment churned and as the ark bobbed up and down and swirled in the churning waters of a global flood, as Noah and his seven family members sat sealed within a darkened ark that's being tossed to and fro upon these dark waters, in the midst of all that, God remembered Noah. He didn't just engage in a mental exercise. He engaged in a direct action, and God did something on behalf of Noah. As we see the text unfold in chapter 8, we see the thing that God did. He made a wind blow, and the waters begin to recede. You know, in the Old Testament, every time we see God remembering, it's also paired with him doing some sort of action. So a little bit later in the book of Genesis, in chapter 30, we see that God remembered Jacob's wife, Rachel, And when God remembered her, he enabled her to conceive. And then Rachel bore the son Joseph. And Joseph would go on to be this iconic figure in the book of Genesis who who helped the people of Israel survive famine. Later on in the book of Exodus, after hearing the the Hebrews cry for a rescue as they were, were being oppressed by Pharaoh and by Egypt, God remembered, it says, his covenant with, his ancestors, with the ancestors of the, the Hebrews. He, he remembered this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he rescued them from Egyptian slavery. So listen, in the scriptures, when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. Remember this. Remember that when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered remembered. Now we have a lot of text today. I'm not going to settle into all the the verses today. We're going to kind of look at the mountaintops, the high points, pardon the pun, Uh, but we need to recognize before we just jump into some of the the things that are happening in our passage, I think there's, I don't normally do this, but there's an incredible structure to our passage today that I want you to be able to see because it's important because the structure of this passage helps us understand the intended, the intended meaning. So, so, so when God inspired human authors to write biblical texts, he did so in a, in a way that there's a structure and there's an emphasis and there's an aim. God, the human, or God, the divine author, had an intended message he was trying to communicate through his word. And oftentimes, how you and I as Bible readers understand God's intended message or the intended purpose of his biblical text is to see the structure. The structure of a text often reveals what God is saying. And I don't normally show all the structure of a passage, but this is just absolutely incredible to me. The shape of the flood account indicates exacting care by Moses as as to its content and literary style. That's what Kent Hughes says. So there's a literary term here. I'm not trying to use big words. I'm not a big word guy. Maybe you've heard of this word. It's called chiasm or, or chiasmus. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented... And then it's repeated in reverse order. Think of like a mirror, right? A mirror is a reflection of something but in reverse order. In the Bible, there are often this structure, these literary devices called chiasms. Our text today is a huge chiasm. Think of A, B, C, D, C, B, A. That's the way our text, I just want you to see this. Look at this on, on the screen here. I got it laid out. This is from Kent Hughes, but this is how our text lays out today. We see the Lord commands a remnant to enter the ark. You see how that A is paired with the bottom A? God commands the remnant to leave the ark. B, the flood begins. B, below, the earth dries. The flood ends. C, the flood prevails. C, the flood recedes. And what's in the very center of our passage today? God remembers Noah. The interesting thing about a chiasm is, is it's often an arrow and at the tip of the arrow, that's the, the, the primary intent or the focus or the big idea of the passage. 
So if we look at the way our text is, is organized today, what do you think the main idea that God wants you and I to understand as we look at the entire flood narrative is? God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. It's incredible. There's another, look at the numbers of days. This is another way in which we see this perfect structuring of our passage today. Seven days of waiting for the flood, seven days of waiting for the flood, 40 days, 150 days, God remembers. Look at it in reverse order. 150 days of waters waning, 40 days of waiting, seven days, seven days. Isn't it incredible? I mean, the flood is a historic event. This really happened. The, the, the book of Genesis, a historical narrative, it's telling us about real things, but God in his divine wisdom inspired Moses to write these words in such an incredibly precise and organized way that you and I today can look at the center of that and we see those three words. What are they? God remembers Noah. Isn't that incredible? Look at the, the way in which I've outlined my sermon today. I want you to see that my sermon outline reflects the structure of the text. Here's the five points of our sermon today. The command to enter, rising waters and decreation, God remembers Noah, receding water and recreation, the command to exit. So I want you to see in the way we work through the text is we're paying attention to the structure of the passage. I just think that's super interesting. And it's important because it reveals the emphasis of the text. God remembers. Remember, when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. Remember this, when God remembers... He acts by moving toward the one remembered. Let's look at the very first, the first point today. The, the, the command to enter in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 7. We see first the command to enter the ark in verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Noah, beginning in verse 1, The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then we see all the details of entering the ark, how that's going to work. We see then in verse 5, we see, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And then in verse 6, it's sort of a reiteration of what we heard in the first five verses. And then we end here in verse 9. Everything went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Now remember, we learned last week and in the previous week that God found favor with Noah. We learned that Noah was a faithful man. Verse 9 of chapter 6 last week gives us this picture of who Noah was. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. None like him, the only righteous one on the face of the earth. And now as we look at our text here between the final verse of chapter 6 and here up through verse 16 of chapter 7, four times, Moses makes sure to tell us that Noah obeyed the things that God commanded. We learned last week he was a faithful man. We see this week that he's walking in faithfulness in the midst of a difficult time. In verse 22 of chapter 6, Noah did all that God commanded him. In verse 5 of chapter 7, and the Lord, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. In verse 9 of chapter 7, everything went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And then ahead in verse 16, everything went in the ark as God commanded him. Noah was obedient. Here's what one scholar says. The author repeats four times that those who survived the flood were those who had done as the Lord commanded. God's point is clear. Obedience to the will of the Lord is a way to salvation. Noah was obedient to the will of the Lord. He was obedient to the commands of God. And very literally, in the flood account, it was his salvation. God is a saving God. He is a patient God. His desire is that none should perish. Peter, in 2 Peter, tells us about the character of God in relationship to the second coming, the second judgment. The Lord is now, in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 10, here's what Peter writes. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter goes on to say, But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So God is a patient God. His desire is that none should perish, but his judgment is coming. Just like God provided Noah and his family with salvation through the ark in our text, he also provides for us today salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate ark of salvation. I read this week that just as God provides sinners in our text with a divinely approved means of escape in and through the work of the ark, so in Christ Jesus, God provides sinners, you and me, with a divinely approved means of escape in and through the work of Christ on the cross. And so today, in this place, right here as we gather in this sanctuary, God is calling sinners to the safety and salvation of his merciful provision. Today, as we gather in this place, just as God patiently called sinners to safety on the ark, so God today calls us to believe in him and trust in his refuge of mercy, Jesus Christ. This is how he acts toward us as he remembers us. Remember. When God remembers, he acts by moving towards the one remembered. Secondly, we see the, the rising water and decreation. After the command to enter the ark, we see rising water and decreation. That's your second point today in verses 10 through 24. And the language here is pretty stark. If you look at these verses 10 through 24 in chapter 7, we see the, raw, the waters rising and prevailing as they rise. And we also see the language of how the waters brought destruction on the earth. Look at verse 10. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And we skip ahead to verse 17. There's this description of what happens and how Noah gets all the animals in the ark and gets his family in the ark and how the Lord shut them in in verse 16. And then in verse 17, we read that the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. Again, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Again, the waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits. He goes on and on. Between verses 17 and 20, it paints this vivid picture of rising waters. We see that the waters increased high above the earth. We see the waters prevailed and increased greatly. We see them mightily prevailing. We see them prevailing above all things. And in so doing, as we're seeing the destruction of these waters that are prevailing and rising on the face of the earth, we're seeing that they are bringing a, a form of decreation. The things that God had created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are now being deconstructed or decreated in chapter 7. Ken Hughes puts it this way. The beds of the seas and torrential rain makes us recall chapter 1 when the waters above and below the firmament were separated. But now in our text, in a massive act of decreation, they're now unleashed back into chaos. Derek Kidner, a Genesis scholar, says this. He says, we can infer from the statement, the great deep, and the other statement, the windows of heaven. We see a vast upheaval of the seabed and torrential rain. But these expressions are deliberately evocative of chapter 1. The waters above and below the firmament are, in token, merged again, as if to reverse the very work of creation and bring back the featureless waste of waters. As the waters rise, we see a decreation of the things that God made. And then if you look here at, at verse 21 through 24, we, or 21 through 23, we see that the rising waters and the decreation brought with it destruction and death, the very judgment of God. Look at verse 21. 
All flesh died that moved on the earth. Look at verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Look at verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Later in 23, they were blotted out from the earth. In these few verses between 21 and 23, Moses paints this picture of, the, of death as creation is undone. All the flesh on the face of the earth died. Everything that breathed and had the breath of life died. All living things were blotted out. Everything was blotted out from the, faith, from the face of the earth, except for Moses and his family and the animals on the ark. Look especially at verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Do you remember the last time we heard language of the breath of life being in the nostrils? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, is we're hearing God's creation of mankind. Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But now... In chapter 7 of Genesis, in the waters of judgment, God is taking that breath away. The end result is a universal flood and universal death. Now, it sounds it's hard for us to read of universal death, but this is not an arbitrary, fickle thing that God is doing. The flood was justified. This is God's just punishment for a wicked world. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. And sin in the world was not just partial. They weren't just kind of sinful. It was in totality. There wasn't a, a molecule upon the face of the earth, save Moses, that were, where righteousness existed. It was a total depravity. The wages of sin is death. The Lord regretted that he made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart, we read in chapter 6. So as a result... This just, the just waters of punishment, the just waters of God's justice, all living souls in the pre-flood world died. Their corruption and violence could only be met with death, one scholar writes. So in the midst of all this destruction, we see God's mercy towards Noah. Noah wasn't sinless. Yes, we read in last week's text that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God, but he wasn't a sinless man. And so by God showing grace to, to, to Noah, we, we see his mercy. Do you see the intimate care of God for Noah? Look at verse 16 again. There's this really interesting, this really interesting thing that God does in verse 16. And it says, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And look at those last few words, that last sentence in verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. Noah didn't close the door of the ark. The Lord shut him in. One person writes the expression here beautifully shows God's fatherly touch at the brink of judgment. The same care that saw this matter through carries out salvations to its conclusion. And so there's this single, heavy, pitched-over door of the ark, and it's locked by an act of God. And this, this ark is massive. It's, it's one and a half football fields long. It's four stories high. It's massive. A uh, hundred thousand feet of, of deck space. And there's this little door. This little door through which people have to enter. As the whole world faces destruction in the judgment waters of God, there was a narrow passage to salvation through this narrow door in the side of an ark. God commanded Noah to build it. 
He commanded Noah to enter through the narrow door, and then God himself closed the door with Noah and his family safely on the inside. And guess what? God still provides salvation through the narrow door. As Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the kingdom. Do you remember this? He's talking about the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14? He says, enter my kingdom, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Oh, how well the world knows at the time of Noah that that's true. The gate is easy or the, the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, Jesus says. But Matthew 7, 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so the same gracious God that provided salvation to Noah and his family, that same gracious God, that same saving God, is just as gracious, and he saves today. God protects and saves those who put their faith in him and trust in his refuge. We see a picture of that with Noah. But just as God protected and saved Noah, God also protects and saves all who put their trust in Jesus Christ, the narrow way, as a refuge from God's anger. Now listen, don't forget this. Remember... When God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. By Jesus coming to earth, this is God moving toward the ones he remembers. So the flood is, is seen as the command to enter the rising water and decreation. Here we get to the centerpiece of our passage, the third point in eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. So the third thing I want you to write down is, is God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. This is the hinge of the two halves of the chiasm. And sandwiched in the middle of this is this text that God remembers Noah. Remember what we said about God remembering earlier. When the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. Those aren't my words. Another scholar says that God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. Just the picture of a, a sovereign mighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, creator God. I mean, the God who, who, who placed the, the stars in the sky, the God who spins the earth on its axis, the God who, who, who knits us together, who forms us, who breathes the breath of life into us, creator God, sovereign God, king of kings, king of the universe. In his love, when he remembers you, he moves toward you in an intimate, loving way. He didn't stay in the far-off reaches of the galaxy watching from an impersonal distance as this creator God removed from intimate interaction with his humanity. No, no, no. No, he became flesh. And he moves toward us in and through the Son of Jesus, or the work of Jesus. And he, he, he came in human form and he suffered. The things you suffer, the things you experience, he understands, he knows, he identifies, he draws near to us. Remember, when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the ones remembered. And as I think of Noah on that ark, there's no record that God spoke to Noah as him and his family were on the ark. God spoke to him and gave him instructions on how to build the ark, right? And some scholars say it took as many as 120 years for the ark to be built. So God speaks, build an ark, Noah, for however many decades or centuries it was that Noah used to build the ark. He, he operated exclusively on the bare word of God. God had spoken to him and told him to do a thing, so Noah did the thing. After the ark is complete, again, seven days before the, the flood, God speaks again to Noah. He tells him the instructions of how to, how to get into the ark. He closes up the ark behind Noah. And for the year or so that the flood was taking place, we don't see anywhere in Genesis where God spoke again. 
So as Noah and his family were inside the ark, as it's bobbing up and down, churning on the waters of justice, they, they were operating exclusively on faith of the things that God had said, persevering in the midst of an incredibly challenging time. Can you imagine what it was like for them? Can you imagine that moment when the, when the, when the earth burst and floodwaters crashed into the side of the ark? Did they hear people screaming? Was there earthquakes? Was there volcanoes? As, as the ark is thrust into the sky, churning and swirling on the black waters of death, what was it like for them? And we don't have any indication that God spoke to them in that moment. Maybe he did. The, the author of Genesis doesn't record that for us. That would be terrifying. But they clung to the word of God, the bare word of God, in the midst of that challenging moment. And even in the unsure darkness of the deep, Noah had to trust the previous word of God. He had to remain obedient. He had to display patience. He was a man who had walked with God before, and in the midst of a challenging season, he walked with God. Remember, when God remembers, he acts by moving towards the one remembered. And maybe, just maybe, Noah clung to that promise. Upon his remembering of Noah and those in the ark, God moves toward them in love. God causes the floodwaters to recede. Look at what it says in verses 1 through 14. I'll, I'll hit the high points here. Beginning in verse 1b, God made a wind blow over the earth. In his remembrance, he made the wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided, verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. We continue to read that the waters had abated at the end of verse 3. At the beginning of verse 5, the waters continued to abate. Skip all the way ahead to verse 11. In the middle of verse 11, Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Verse 13, the waters were dried off of the earth. Later on in verse 13, the face of the ground was dry. Verse 14, the earth had dried out. So the fourth thing we see is receding water and decreation. This is, the, this is the bee that compares, this is the, the chiastic comparison to rising waters and decreation. Now we see receding waters and recreation, the mirror image. What changed? From the churning waters of judgment, what changed? Verse 1, God remembered Noah. God remembered. And in his remembrance of Noah, God made the wind blow. Uh, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. That word wind is the Hebrew word ruach. This is the same exact word in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis that's translated spirit. Do you remember how, how Genesis begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit, ruach, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And now in chapter 8, as this God wind blows over the face of the deep, it's an intentional allusion to the creation account of Genesis, but this now is a recreation. Hovering over the waters of a, a decreated world is the Spirit of God blowing with creation hope as a picture of recreation. And you notice how when God remembered Noah, he didn't snap his fingers and make the floodwaters instantly disappear. There was a season of waiting, a challenging season of waiting. Noah was left in the ark. God remembered him. I don't, it doesn't tell us that God told Noah, hey, hey Noah, I remember you, chill out, it's going to be okay. We don't hear that God told Noah or gave him a clue that he remembered him. And so as Noah's in the ark, left to worry, left to wonder, left to wait, the wind slowly causes the floodwaters to recede. Another Genesis scholar writes this, listen to this. 
it is noticeable how the author has prolonged the picture of God's deliverance. It doesn't happen in a moment. God is depicted at work, stopping the flow of the waters and removing the sources of the floods. But it still takes time before Noah can be back on dry land. Noah still has to wait. With this picture of God at work as background, the author turns his attention to Noah inside the ark. The narrative now focuses on the patience of Noah as he waits on God's deliverance. As the ark rests on top of the mountains and as Noah waits on God before he can exit the ark, as Noah sits in the darkness of the ark, he is living in an already not yet reality. Noah, as he sits in the ark, he is already saved from the flood. The ark is on dry ground on the top of a mountain, but he's not yet standing on the renewed earth. He's not yet standing on dry ground. Noah had to live by faith. He had to trust God. Noah had to hold tight to the belief that God had not forgotten him. He had to cling to the hope that God did, in fact, remember him. He had to be reminded. He had to remember that when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. Just like Noah had to live in an already not yet reality, we today in this place have to live in a similar reality except on a grander scale. As Christians, we are already, as those of us that have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are already actively taking part in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom has not yet reached its full expression. You and I are, are a part of a royal priesthood. We're already in the kingdom, but we're not yet given the privilege of seeing the kingdom in all of its glory. 1 John 3, verse 2 puts it this way. Dear friends, John writes, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. This is a picture of the already not yet that we live in as Christians. But we know that when Christ appears, John continues, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So listen, we're in this already not yet ourselves. And as we struggle with the realities of this life as we know that God is sovereign, as we know that we have been saved, as we know that glory awaits those of us that have been redeemed in Christ, we have to look out the window of our house. We have to watch the news come into our home. We have to see the, the, the darkness and the depravity and the destruction that happens in the world around us. It can become taxing. It can become wearing. We can wane. Remember. Remember. When God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. Take heart, Christian. God has not forgotten you. God is sovereign over everything that happens. He's never asleep at the wheel. God is working out his plan. Just as Noah sat in that ark without an understanding of the plan that God was working out, we have the benefit of history. We can look back through salvation history up on the ark. We can see the character of God. He did never, he never forgot Noah, and he never forgets those of his election, or those of his elect. He never forgets us. Remember that when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one remembered. Lastly, the last thing we see is we see the, the counterpart to the command to enter the ark. We finally see the command to exit. We see the command to exit. Look at chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you. Of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is a purposeful, 
This is a purposeful uh, picture of recreation. This is a, perf- a purposeful parallel of, of the original uh, creation account we have in chapter 1. This is God repopulating a renewed earth. After a year-long period of silence, God again speaks to Noah. He commands him to leave the, the ark and to step out onto a renewed planet. And the text moves slowly. And this whole flood account moves slowly. Someone, I read someone this week that called it Hebrew slow motion. There's a reason why the text slows down here on the flood account. God wants us to see this, rep- this repetition. He wants us to gaze and see these things. He wants us to see Noah almost as a second Adam as he steps into a virgin world washed clean by judgment. Amidst colorful birds filling the air and great animals lumbering forth and busy creatures scurrying about, there Noah stands with his family in the sunlight of a new world. Those aren't my words. That's a, a scholar says that. So as we see Noah and we see the others, the animals in his family step out into this recreated world, you and I are reminded as Bible readers, as Christians, we're reminded that God's wrath purges the world of sin and the unrepentant sinner. But God's wrath will not touch those who are in his appointed place of refuge. Christ has bore our wrath. He has died in our place. The salvation of Noah and his ark mates is a, is a preliminary, it's a precursor to the salvation we have in Jesus, the ark of salvation. Remember, when God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one Remembered. And so there we see an overview of the flood narrative, the command to enter the ark, rising waters and decreation. God remembers Noah receding waters and recreation, the command to exit. And I go back and I remember and I think and I try to imaginatively place myself in the ark with Noah in those tumultuous moments. It's easy for us as Bible readers to kind of sanitize it. As we look back, but if you just place yourself in the horror of a global flood, in those long seasons of time where Noah didn't hear from God and he had to walk in faith, clinging to the bare word that God had already spoken, even when they were afraid and even when the darkness was overwhelming, though they didn't maybe know it at the time, we know it as we look back on the, the, flood, the flood narrative, we know that God was faithful. In all the horror and the death and the decreation, God was carrying out his perfect purpose. Remember chapter 3, verse 15? This is such an important verse as we read Genesis. We've got to go back to this verse all the time. Remember what God says to the serpent in the garden? As he's speaking a curse over the serpent, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says those faithful words, the seed of Eve, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first preaching of the gospel. This is Jesus in the third chapter of the book. In his remembering, God acted to preserve faithful Noah and work his promised plan through Noah. Noah was the only righteous man on earth, and God preserved him and put him on an ark through the line of Noah would come Jesus one day. This is God working out his plan. It's hard to see. You and I, we enter all the time into unsure times in our lives I think the world right now is in an unsure place. I think our country right now is in an unsure place. It is so easy to let our eyes fall from the promise of God. It's easy for us to to, to no longer remember or to forget that God moves toward the ones he loves, the ones he remembers. It's easy for us to forget that and let our eyes fall and look at the churning waves of the world around us. We don't do that. We're not that different from Noah. By entering the ark, Noah ensured the physical survival of himself 
and his family, but God has drawn near to us in his love through the work of Jesus. God was with Noah and his family through the frightening year-long ordeal. When you and I come into saving faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, God comforts us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He protects us. He speaks to us through his word. The ark had only one door through which Noah had to enter to be saved from the flood. Likewise, those of us that seek to be saved from the, from the death our sin deserves, we enter by faith in and through the work of Christ, the narrow way. When Noah entered the ark, God himself closed the door. Those people outside who chose not to enter the ark's door were, were left to face the destructive force of the flood, the just punishment their sins deserve. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. But Paul continues, he says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, we have only this one life to enter Christ's door of salvation. The way you and I find salvation is in and through the work of Christ. And for those of us that are born again, those of us that are in the family of God, he remembers us. The cross is a remembrance that Jesus remembers us. It's a reminder that he remembers us. He's acted by moving toward us in Christ. All who are in Christ are forgiven and redeemed. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his children. 1 John 3 tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and we are. In 1 Peter we read that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. This is what God sees when he looks at us, when he remembers us, he draws near to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, remember this. When God remembers, he acts by moving toward the one he remembered. And Jesus is the perfect picture of how God has remembered us and moved toward us in love. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the flood narrative. God, I know that we are uh, people who has heard that so often, God. Even those who are outside the walls of the church have heard of this flood. We read of hundreds of cultures that have some sort of a myth or a story of a flood. God, thank you for giving us eyes to see and to understand the, the, the purpose of the intent, the, the thing you are and we're doing and accomplishing through this. God, thank you that we can read those words in Genesis 8, verse 1, that you remembered Noah, God. You remembered Noah and you remember us. God, you draw near to us as you remember us. God, you have drawn near to us in your son, Jesus. God, would you draw our eyes to Christ this morning? God, would you remind us of the amazing love that drove Christ to the cross on our behalf? God, is as men and women who are destined to spend an eternity separated from you because we have sin in our lives. Jesus, you became sin that, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I'm so thankful, God, that you have opened eyes of many to see the, the salvation that rests in and through you. God, I pray this morning for those here who have never came to a point in their life where they have trusted in you, Jesus, that this would be a day, this would be a moment where they would fix their eyes upon the cross and upon the work of Jesus. God, may we trust you. May, may, we, may, may the prayer of our heart be a prayer of faith where we say unto you, Jesus, like, God, we need you. God, we're, we're in need of, of saving. Our, the wages of sin is death, and we have sin in our lives. But God, by the work of your son, Jesus, you have taken away the sin. So God, like, may we as a people trust in you this morning, trust in the work you've done on our behalf. God, by the power of your spirit, would you, God, would you, regenerate us. God, would you move us from death to life? Would you forgive us? Would you make us new? 
And God, would you use us, your church, your people, for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.